This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put an end to my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the and campaign's church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, the right reverend, my play cousin, Christopher Butler. What's going on, Chris? Oh, everything. It's February, getting into the year. Getting you getting uh you getting back back settled in, huh? Yes. You know, uh let the holidays wear off and uh People get settled into the rhythms, get through some uh, some New Year's resolutions, fall to the side, and then you get into the uh, the rhythm of the year. Well, let me ask you this: since we talked about it earlier, how's your your weight loss going? Uh, it's actually it, it has gone well for January, but uh, on on Sunday I had my first uh, Italian beef Italian combination sandwich of 2023, and I just you know I can't I can't go back to that life, Justin. Yeah, I'm with you. But the funny part about it is, Chris, that you bring that up is because I actually had an Italian beef sandwich Sunday myself. So we actually had Portillo ship us Italian beef because it was my dad's birthday. By the way, shout out dad on his 70th birthday. Um, and so we ate the same, man. But yeah, I can't I can't make it a, a everyday thing. Yeah, that can't be a habit. We also I took the kids to Portillo's. So, yeah, that has to be like I have to eat Portillo's like I live in Atlanta. Um, right. Like very sparing. And for those of who don't live in Chicago, when you visit Chicago, you got to get the Italian beef. I usually get the combo. So it's Italian beef and man, it's it's crazy. So you can go to Portillo's and check that out. But there's some other stuff we got to get to, too, Chris. Uh, number one, I want to talk a little bit about Joe Biden, who will be giving his State of the Union speech and just kind of what you expect from that speech. By the time people hear this, it might have been a day day or so. It might happen, you know, uh, it might be a day after it's happened. But, um, you know, six, you know, I just saw a uh, poll that said six in 10 Americans say that Biden hasn't accomplished much. I saw another poll that said a lot of, if not most, Democrats don't even want him to run again. If you're Biden, what are you going to focus on uh, in this, in the State of the Union? I I think he has several things that he has to accomplish. I mean, it's it's an odd thing for an incumbent president uh, who just had a good midterm, but he probably has to spend some time shoring up like the Democratic base. So really putting in context and argue, making the case that he has gotten things done, which I think is a case that can be made. It may not be all the stuff that Democrats wanted to see done, but he's gotten legislation passed. Um, which in the context of this current political climate ain't for nothing. So he's got to make that argument. And I think he's got a 
so there's that political role because the campaign thing is getting ready to happen. But he's also got a very presidential job to do, I think, in terms of speaking to the nation about uh, kind of geopolitical issues and the global scene um, with war in Ukraine, with um, the uh, major uh, natural disaster in Turkey and Syria, uh, which we certainly pray for all those folks there, uh, and with Chinese spy balloons, you know, being shot down over U.S. airspace, you have to create some, uh, you got to speak to that if you're the president of the United States. Uh, and so I think he has to do that. Um, and then he's got to do all of that without losing too many uh, independents and making it sound like a straight political speech. So, yeah, it should be interesting. I think it's it's probably too overstated to say that he doesn't hasn't done anything. I mean, he did pass a, a, a what one point two trillion dollar infrastructure bill, uh, which is something whether you like the bill or not. Uh, I think the issue is that people aren't feeling it. Right. So you can pass all this stuff and you're not feeling an infrastructure bill takes a long time to get done. You got to make sure that it's actually done right. A lot of money's not wasted and all that stuff. So I think that's that's kind of where we are with that. And again, this wasn't one of our, our three issues that we're going to cover today. But I did want to touch on it briefly because I think it's something that we all need to kind of uh, be watching if you can. But but something to look out for to see what the administration's thinking. Man, I'll tell you, too, man, the New York Times yesterday had a it wasn't a hit piece but a really tough piece for uh vice president kamala harris uh where a lot of her supporters are even saying that they have just lost hope in what she's doing so fair or unfair that that's kind of uh what's going on for the administration right now as always y'all know what we got to do we got to shout out uh our sponsor the fetzer institute for supporting us and what we do and how we do it we also want to shout out those individuals who uh who support us through patreon.com slash church politics. If you want to li- if you want to support us and also get our premium episodes, which we'll have one of those today about gentrification, uh, then you need to tune in. Then you need to uh, go to our Patreon and become a supporter there. All right, let's get into it. So grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. Chris, as you know, a really sad Uh, And wicked thing happened in Memphis, Tennessee. It's been a few weeks since Tyree Nichols was murdered. And a lot has been said about that murder, and understandably so. And the Ann campaign has shared condolences, prayers, etc. But as many of you know, uh, we try to stay away from hot takes. Uh, I think, you know, we've come to believe that immediate analysis can be problematic. That's can be. It doesn't it's not necessarily problematic, but it can be because a lot of times it's based on groupthink. Right. And we haven't gotten past the emotion and all those things to kind of think through what actually happened. Now, that's not to say that this particular instance wasn't clearly wrong. That's not what I'm getting at. Um, but for the end campaign, we do try to be as sober and thoughtful as possible before we render a deeper assessment. Because a lot of times the more superficial stuff or stuff that comes out immediately isn't really adding so much to the discourse. Uh, so, you know, we usually take a couple of days unless there's some reason that we need to kind of render some immediate uh, reaction. Um, and, and if there's some reason that we find that to be necessary, uh, because, again, we would like to add something to the discourse, not just speak to be heard. And that's become our our mode of operation. And we understand some folks do it differently and some folks do it well, even though it's different. 
One thing I noticed, Chris, is one of the unfortunate things that usually happens when we have a tragedy like this is that a lot of people, at least on social media, immediately try to use it, use the tragedy to further their narrative, right? To prove their tribe's assertions and worldview are correct. And again, unfortunately, this case was no different. All right. So on one side, you had people who took the fact pattern, which was several black police officers killing a black man and used it as proof that systemic racism wasn't to blame for police brutality or that systemic racism didn't exist at all. That was one of the points of view. You had others who said that the race of the officers didn't matter at all and shouldn't be really included in the assessment uh, because they were part of an unjust system and they were prone to be unjust to their own people too. Right. Some even went so far as to say that we should abolish the police because whether you have whatever type of office you offices you have, because it's such a broken way to do things that we just shouldn't have police at all. Chris, let me briefly respond to both of those contentions. Um, for one. Just because black people are involved on both sides of a matter doesn't mean systemic racism isn't involved. Right. That, that, that's not an absolute. That's not that's not necessarily true. And I want to be clear about that. I believe that there are those who have been conditioned within certain institutions to do things that are contrary to the interests of their people. I think you can look no further than the publicans in Jesus's time. Matthew was a Jew who was working for a system that was oppressing his people. It happens. It is possible. OK. Um, a black administrator in a broken system doesn't automatically remove the racial bias in that system. It might help. It might not help. Right. It doesn't necessarily erase ingrained injustice. Um, another historical example is a black worker at the federal agency administering G the GI Bill, for instance, after World War II, doesn't render the GI Bill and related policies racially equitable just because they're one of the people administering it. The presence of black people doesn't immediately cure the system. And I think that's a point that a lot of people were trying to make. And I think there's something to that. That said, Chris, I think there's another layer here, though, because you and I both know that black people, like everybody else, have agency. We make conscious choices and our choices matter. We have consciences just like everybody else. We know right from wrong. Ultimately, those officers are responsible for what they did. They are not machines controlled by system operators. Um, I personally, Chris, have worked with black officers in a majority black city like Memphis, and they are not robots, robots that are trained to kill their own people. Most of the ones that I met loved their community, were very self-aware, understood the history and the struggles that the community had had with police officers and made good choices. But at the same time, I've been treated very, very poorly by some black officers. Uh, one time I wasn't home. My wife called the police because somebody was uh, kind of uh, had come to the door or something like that. And it was late at night. And the police officer said, don't you know where you live? When they finally showed up, he was like, don't you know where you live? If you didn't want to have any problems, you shouldn't have moved here. That's not how police officers should talk to anybody. So, so those things do happen. But let me say this. 
People all over the world, throughout history, have hurt people within their own racial and ethnic group all the time. That, that's, not, not, that's, not, that's not something that's unique. It's not something that's new. And so I'm not willing to always blame that on someone else. This has been the case since Cain and Abel, before colonialism, before any other type of ism. And so as we recognize systemic injustice and that it's real and that it can happen even when black people or others are involved, I do want to dispel the suggestion that black people only hurt one another because the system is racist. Sometimes that might be true. It's certainly not always true. So I would not use systemic racism to make that, to draw that conclusion, as I think some are suggesting. If I go bust Chris over the head and steal his computer, that's on me, no matter what system I'm a part of. And I don't know any Bible, maybe Chris does, I don't know any Bible that relieves me of that responsibility. The point is, as we acknowledge systemic racism, don't pretend that evil only comes from the people who control the system. Evil comes from you and it comes from me as well. Even if the system was good, there would be people who looked like each other in that system who violated one another. You can blame it on the fall. But every time we hurt each other isn't the fault of the system and everyone in the system isn't hurting people. And Chris, I don't know if everybody can handle that level of nuance. Uh, It is easier. It is cleaner. And it is more convenient to make it as simple as possible and to blame it on some big bad enemy or to absolve ourselves and act like racism doesn't exist, systemic racism doesn't exist, or that we personally wouldn't hurt anybody. That makes for an easier narrative. But I believe that reality is sometimes more complex. Chris, you want to speak into this? Yeah, I mean, I I think that you get toward something that is really important and a part of this that I've been really thinking about. It's it's almost as if we are too often, in, in my view, as a society, uh, walking past these kinds of opportunities to to actually come together and find common ground. Because what you see in this tragedy uh, is, if we if we would admit it, right. Uh, is it is a flip of the script, right? And rather than just going out and trying to figure out how we can pull it into our existing narrative, there's an opportunity to step back and see some usefulness in the other side of the conversation, right? Uh, so if if you are a person who uh, you know who who looks at systemic racism. Uh, as your point of emphasis, uh, I think that's good and um, and fine. But then you can't. You, you have to then go back and say maybe in some of these previous instances we didn't draw enough of a line between the individual white person who was the police officer who committed the crime and was the source of the tragedy and the system that created them into that, right? Like we, we didn't defend them against that. We, we, you didn't hear a lot of people who talk systemic racism stepping up and saying, Hey, no, it wasn't this guy's whiteness, uh, his personal whiteness that made him do this. It was this corrupt system that corrupted this 
individual who we would have to assume would otherwise be a a good individual and demonstrate good behavior he this white man entered this corrupt system and look what the system did to him right like we're not as quick to make that argument when the when the cops white at the same time if you are in the in the camp of I don't believe in systemic racism. I'm more in the, you know, bad apples category. Then you can't take this one and say, well, now this disproves something at a systemic level, right? Uh, this shows that the system is not corrupt and it's just, you know, um, you know, you, you get bad people all the time. Like you, you have to, you, you can't use this individual uh, point to absolve the system if you are unwilling to allow for the possibility that you can use individual uh, experiences to indict the system, right? So both of these kind of approaches to thinking have their own strengths and weaknesses, but what you have in, in, in this moment is an opportunity to, to take a different kind of analysis to your you know, your, your kind of regular approach, like the, the part of this conversation that you're usually on, there's a rich opportunity to like think about it a little bit differently, which creates an opportunity for us to come together for people who usually are not willing to talk about systemic issues to be like, hey, maybe there are some systemic systemic problems. Yeah. Be- because this does complicate the narrative, right? Like for some people to say that there's systemic issues, which we both believe there are within policing. Um, it complicates it a little bit for there to be black officers, but the way people immediately say, oh, that doesn't complicate it any, anyway. Absolutely. Even though they're black, they're absolutely a part of the system. And, and this was, we could have said this was always going to happen. It's like, that's a little too, too much. Also, I want to ask you this. Do you find this to be a reason to abolish the police? And here's what people are saying. It doesn't matter who you put on the, the, uh, on the force. It doesn't matter what the training is. This is such a bad system that it just needs to be abolished. And I don't know about you. And we talked. I do know about you, but we talked about this. And I just think that's one of the most unwise, if not completely ridiculous ideas that I've ever ever heard. And about 80 percent of black people agree with that. Now, Chris, I believe that we can substantially decrease police brutality. I believe we can. Some people don't believe that. I think we can. I don't know if we can completely get rid of it, but I don't think the fact that we might not be able to completely get rid of it because of the evil in people and the systems that they produce. I don't think that means that you abolish the police because people looking to victimize others don't disappear if the police are abolished. They're emboldened. Right. And so the idea. So to me, that idea is an example of when we become so ideological that we become completely impractical and, and really absurd. But I wanted to hear quickly what you, what you thought about that. Yeah. I mean, I think it is, uh, you know, ab- absurd and, and badly misguided to take this and say, we have to abolish the police. I still have not heard the reason I'm not for abolishing the police. Cause I still have not heard what comes next. Um, because just abolishing the police, as you just said, is, is not going to get rid of. Yeah. Folks who, who want to do crime. Um, Chris, utopia comes next, man. Right. You know, you just get rid of the police and then people are like, hey, now I don't have to do bad because the reason people are out here committing crime is obviously to, like, provoke the police. Um, right. You know, so I, I, I think that there's an opportunity to to do some things to fix the system. 
right? If, if you think that the system is broken and not the people, right, which that's what I was saying in the, in the last piece, if we can somehow get enough people around this idea that maybe the system is more broken than the people, whether those people are white or black. Right. Because I think on when you talk about systemic racism, those of us who like to talk about it a lot do not provide enough for a conversation around the fact that the individual white police officers who have committed these heinous acts in in history that we have been very outraged about and rightly so have also been part of a broken system. And so we we've let it be more of like a. A, a race thing than it necessarily needs to be. I think it is a system thing. If we can get to that, then we can say, how do we fix the system? And and it uh, it, it caused me to the article that that you sent um, from David French that I think you'll uh, you're going to talk a little bit more about. But it, it he discusses something not in, in the direct words, but it's something that I I talk about all the time. It is there are some things that we can do to fix the system. Right now, you have uh, for the most part, and there's no like really national policing policy right now, but for the most part, if you look at policing policy across the country, it vests way too much authority in police departments without enough accountability. And that's the problem. Like that is what you have to fix. And that can be fixed if you can focus on that problem and not try to convince yourself that you have to solve racism in order to fix police. That's good. Yeah, I mean, uh, David French is is a friend of the Ann campaign. Has he been on here? I don't think he's been on here yet. I've been on his uh, podcast and been on, you know, all kind of panels and stuff like that with him. But he writes a very good article, which was in the New York Times, about whether this police, these police issues are a matter of a bad apple or if it's a systemic issue. And here's some of the things that he says. And uh, we're getting a little long on this uh, this segment, but I want to this is an important article. Um, he says this. He says, are the deep are there deep and systemic problems with the American police? How we answer that question isn't based solely on personal experience or even available data. It often reflects a massive partisan divide. Our partisanship tends to affect our reasoning, influencing our assessments of institutions, regardless of the specifics of any particular case. This is important, Chris, because what we were talking about and why we take our time is we want to make sure that we're looking at the facts of the case within context. Right. Not in isolation, within context, without just jumping to a conclusion based on our ideology. That's what he's getting at. And he goes on to say, here's what I mean. The instant that a person or an institution becomes closely identified with one political tribe, members of that tribe become reflexively protective and are inclined to write off scandals as isolated or the work of a few bad apples. Conversely, the instant an institution is perceived as part of an opposing political tribe, the opposite instinct kicks in. We are far more likely to see each individual scandal as evidence of systemic malice or corruption, further proof that the other side is just as bad as we believe they are. This is the whole reason why the AND campaign kind of takes our time. Guess what, guys? Tribes will always try to force you to make immediate uh, 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 to put your p opinion out there immediately and make immediate assertions, it'll be okay if you take your time to look through it, right? To, to understand what's really going on. And that's what we try to do. And I think David French really explains uh, why in an in a, in a articulate way. But Chris, what, what are your thoughts? What other thoughts do you have? 
Yeah, I mean, it, he mentions this one sentence that I think is is very important in the article. If you, if you combine authority with impunity, then corruption and injustice will be the inevitable result. And when I read that sentence, I was like, that is all I'm ever trying to say in these policing conversations. Like, I, and I, I've said this, I said this a bunch when I was running for Congress. I completely support the concept of qualified immunity that police officers cannot be looked at in the context of criminal law exactly the same as uh, the general public. What I don't believe in is unqualified immunity, right? And you have to, if you're going to vest somebody with that type of authority, which if they abuse that authority, they can end people's lives and cause like massive tragedy and trauma throughout entire families and communities. If you give somebody that kind of authority, it has to come with a greater level of accountability than you have in most policing policy today. This And it's not saying abolish the police. It's not saying to dishonor, disrespect at uh, the police or any of those things. But, I mean, our, our scriptures tell us to whom much is given, much is required. Uh, and I think that's a fine thought to take to policing. We, we have to pair more accountability with the level of authority that folks have. That's real, man. So so I think what you can take, there's a lot said here. I think one of the things to take from this is let's 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 view this and, and see what the merits of the case are and not just jump to conclusions about what what happened. Systemic racism exists. Systemic racism and systemic issues can occur when there are minorities involved in the conversation, even on both sides of it. However, to use that and and lead it to a, and have it lead to a conclusion that we would only hurt each other uh we only hurt each other because of systemic issues is wrong too and i think i think you have a hard time justifying that when it when it comes uh, when when you look at it through a biblical lens so we're a little long on this segment but i think it was worth it because it's a very important conversation uh and one that that should be continued because the and campaign will continue to fight for police reform and also to commend our officers who do a very good job and put their lives on the line for us. We can hold both those things together. We'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the 
Church Politics Podcast with my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler, me, Justin Gibney. Uh, Chris, I was reading another uh, interesting article in The Independent, which is a UK publication. Um, it came out last week and they talked about the role that the CIA played in modern art starting in the 1940s. Very interesting. So here, here's one of the quotes from this article. It says, the Central Intelligence Agency used American modern art as a weapon in the Cold War. The CIA fostered and promoted American abstract expressionist painting around the world for more than 20 years. This has been confirmed by former CIA officials. Why did the CIA support uh, this art, you ask? Well, here's what they say. They say because... In the propaganda war with the Soviet Union, this new artistic movement could be held up as proof of the creativity, the intellectual freedom, and the cultural power of the U.S. Russian art, conversely, was strapped into the communist ideological straitjacket and could not compete. The centerpiece of the CIA campaign became the Congress for Cultural Freedom, a vast jamboree of intellectual of intellectuals, writers, historians, poets, and artists, which was set up with CIA funds in 1950 and run by a CIA agent. Chris, I'm sure you, this is, this is, I would, I would advise everybody to read this. As you know, any article that we bring up is going to be in our show notes so you can read it for yourself. But this was, this was crazy to me because usually, as you know, artists see themselves as rebels kind of going against the system. And it's it's ironic that the epitome of the establishment, like the epitome of an establishment organization, the CIA, was actually funding this kind of art. Perhaps it was the biggest funder and promoter of modern art. Um, Now, I want to point out that this article was very clear to, to point out that they didn't create modern art, right? So it's not saying that modern art is just a tool of the CIA, but it was promoted by the CIA um, in its kind of Cold War against uh, the Soviet Union. What were you thinking as you were reading this, Chris? So I was like really fascinated by this. I, I did not read this article before you sent it to me or anything like I had not been uh, exposed to this topic. So I was I was I was truly fascinated, but it 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 really just reminded me of something that I think about a lot in our current context, which is how much a cabal of highly influential people can behind the scenes um, impact culture in a way that drives society, government, politics in a certain direction. Um and it, it just reminded me how important it is for those of us who who care about like civics to be aware of what's taking place in culture. And if if it seems like things are a little bit, you know, too unified to be plausible, to really think into that, speak into that, pray into that, um, and just be aware because it's it's kind of crazy to read that. It sounds like a movie when you uh, read through that article um, to see that the CIA promoted this whole like movement. And, and maybe modern impressionist uh, art 
you know, becomes, you know, a thing without the CIA, but maybe it doesn't. And because of the CIA, we'll never know. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I would point out, Chris, is there's more going on than meets the eye. And this is another reason why we have to be very thoughtful and careful with our analysis of what's going on. This, you know, there are organizations, there are groups that are playing chess. And if we're rendering very basic, predictable uh, analyses of everything, we can fall into a lot of traps. And I think this goes along with the last issue that we're talking about. Like if you want to if you want to put a very simple um, black and white analysis over every issue and come to the same conclusion over similar you know, similar uh, facts, because they're similar, I'm going to come to the exact same conclusion that, again, uh, you know, promotes my narrative or makes it look like my narrative is is right. You're going to be wrong on a lot of things. It's okay to say sometimes we just don't know or I'm not sure exactly what's going on behind the scenes. There's a lot of stuff that goes on that we just don't know about. And so you do have to step back understand that chess is being played, that we can't have this tic-tac-toe mentality where everything is black and white and we can come to a conclusion within a few seconds of of, of getting part of the fact pattern. Because sometimes we don't even have the whole fact pattern before we come we come, uh, we come come to conclusions. So that's one thing that I, I urge people to keep in mind. There's a lot going on beneath the surface. And uh, we have to be observant. We have to be vigilant. But then just understand that sometimes it takes time to really know uh, what's going on. Yeah, and I th- I think your your chess analogy is actually a great one because those uh, who play chess, I'm I'm nobody's chess champion here, but you know I've been known to win a game or two. Uh, but I've I've been around folks who play a lot of chess, and one of the things that you got to do in chess is be really really familiar with the fundamentals of how the game works. Uh, and I think especially for believers, it's so important to be steeped in the principles, the values, the precepts of scripture, so that that always is your North Star, and and you're not out there just trying to react and respond to whatever is happening in the culture at that particular moment. You've got to have an anchor, because if you're just going based off what you see, you can be so easily manipulated. You have to have a moral anchor, and this is the problem that I have with postmodernism and relativism that tells us, no, nah, don't follow scripture, follow what the day is showing you or follow what you know your experience tells you. That can lead you anywhere. And I'm sorry, but we're not discerning enough. We're not smart enough to see through everything that's going on. And so you need that anchor. You need scripture. If, if I want to manipulate the masses to do something, I the, the number one thing I want them to do is draw simple conclusions about everything. And have a simple narrative that they think they can fit over everything. That's just not how it works. Anything else, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that really just uh, gets down to. I really urge people to go read that article. Um, it's fascinating. You should check it out. I agree. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. 
No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the Reverend Christopher Butler. Uh, I was reading my local newspaper, Chris, uh, which is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and they reported that low-income pregnant women could soon qualify for welfare in this state. Uh, and that's according to a bill that was filed on behalf of Governor Brian Kemp. The legislation, House Bill 129, comes after the governor announced the policy during his State of the State address. Under the proposal, sponsored on behalf of Kemp, by Lawrenceville Republican uh, Representative Sue Hong, and I think I hope that's the right uh, pronunciation. Uh, low-income women could apply to the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program while pregnant. Currently, those women would only be eligible uh, for that program, commonly known as welfare, once the child was born. To qualify now for welfare, a child must be in in home with one parent. Or if two parents are home, one must be physically or mentally incapacitated. School age children must be immunized and have an acceptable school attendance record. Uh, there 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 also are income requirements. For example, a family of three must have a gross income below $785 a month. HB 129 would make it so pregnant women who don't yet have children qualify for that particular benefit. Chris, I know you've been talking since the, this year has started and even before this year has started, but it's really become something you, you, you're you uh, big on, family-centered policy. How does this fit into that type of policy? Is it enough? Is it not enough? Should we throw it in the trash? What are your thoughts? Well, I think it's certainly not enough, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. It's, uh, it's really exciting, in, in my view, to see Republicans introducing this type of legislation and moving uh, in this direction. It, it is the uh, the mirror opposite of the Republicans uh, that we talked about, I think, last time in the state of Iowa, where they're trying to roll back these types of programs. So I, I think that if if there's one thing that we got to do in like public policy life is reframe social welfare uh, from being so i think on the on the left too often welfare safety net however we want to talk about it is viewed as something that can somehow replace the family right so uh if if we can have enough programs you know if the public schools work well enough and we weave together the right you know funding of the right programs for food for education for for um, clothing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then people can not even be part of a family and they'll be fine. Uh, not even be part of a community and they'll be fine. And I think that's a wrong-headed view uh, of welfare. But then on, on the other side, uh, on the right, there has been historically this idea uh, that welfare is for the weak. And if we have this type of programming at all, it should only go to the people in the most abject poverty. And they have to jump through a lot of hoops to demonstrate that they are not you know, lazy and, you know, all this type of stuff. I think if we can begin to look at these programs 
as the the idea that we're using the means and mechanisms of the state not to replace the family, but to strengthen it, especially in the context of a a a, a nation and a world where corporate power is perfectly willing to crush the family, to demand all of mom and dad's time, to demand you know that children go to school from can to can't from uh, the time they're three years old until the time they're 26 so that they can go out and get a job and then give their whole soul again back to, to these corporate powers. Government is the, is the only institution robust enough to actually check that corporate power. And so it is, it is strength and liberation for the family that we're trying to accomplish through what I call family centered uh, economic policy, and uh, I think that's that's the right goal. And here, I see Governor Kemp's legislation as a step in that direction because you're essentially in a uh, I think in a, in a fairly pro life state, coming from a pro life politician, saying if we're going to be pro life, uh, then we have to do what we can because you know if if mom is working at Amazon, we can't trust Amazon to take it easy on this pregnant mom who we don't want to lose this baby, who we don't want to travel from Georgia to Illinois to abort this baby. We, we want mom to have this baby. We want baby to have a good life. So we're going to get involved and strengthen mom's resolve and capacity to do what we think is the right. And there's a consistency here, right? If, If you're saying that the baby is alive before it's actually born, then maybe there should be some assistance before it's actually born. So, so I like what uh, Brian Kip did here in keeping the consistency. Because a lot of times you'll hear people say, "Well, you know," because we're we're about whole. We call our we say we have a whole life perspective. We care about the life, not just before birth, but after birth. And like, and people will say, "Well, everybody in the pro life movement cares about that." Well, I can't tell in your policies, <laughs> right? So you can say that, but in the policies that folks have had for fifty years or so, I have not seen that consistency and that uh, consideration within those policies. Thankfully, we do see that coming from Governor Kent right now, who I've, you know, I've had a lot of uh, issues with and criticized, but I think this is a good move. But what I want to ask you, because you're closer to this type of policy and very serious about it as the end campaign tries to take it on even more. What do you see as you said it wasn't quite it wasn't quite enough. What would you change about this policy, even though you recognize that it's heading in the right direction? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I would say that the um, the policy. Well, even in the context of the policy itself, you know, and I, I haven't looked at all of the income things, but the the more you can make these types of policies family oriented and not not so tightly restricted to the the lowest income. Right, because uh, there a, a lot of times these programs miss people who are technically considered in the middle class, but when you really analyze what it means, you know, to be you know seven hundred dollars a month, you could make almost. I mean, you could make a lot more than that and still be hurting yeah. severely. So, so those types of uh, mechanisms are important inside a specific policy, but more so when I say it's not enough, I, I think that the the broader idea is is reframing the conversation around you know welfare, safety net, 
uh, however, you know, the individual is talking about it, reframing that conversation and then figuring out how we weave together the right set of policies um, to really accomplish that objective of strengthening families uh, and liberating families from what has become a, a an onerous burden from corporate power that demands all of the time uh, that it takes to build families and communities. Uh, and, and so that, that's kind of like the, the broader thing where I say is, is not enough. But like I said, it's, I think it's a step in the right direction. It's, it's refreshing to see a prominent Republican at least taking this step because it, it starts to move the conversation forward. And I think there are things that people on the left and on the right have to give up about how we think through uh, policy and I'm, I'll, I'll get off because I know this is going long. But I was talking to, to somebody in the context of of Illinois and Chicago politics who is more on the left about what we have to give up on the left, like this idea that we're going to put enough programs in place where we fundamentally don't need family and community. That is that is equally wrong headed, um, and so there's a lot of work to do. There is a lot of work to do, and and one other thing I'll point out before we go is that. You know, I was recently talking to a fairly well-known pastor who was saying that he had a conversation with with uh, Kemp. Might not have even been, been someone he voted for or would vote for, but he actually sees Kemp doing things that was suggested in the in that conversation. And so I think that goes to say, you know, some folks say, well, why? You know, you're you went in a meeting with a Republican or you went in a meeting with a Democrat. If somebody is in power and has the power to change lives, having a conversation with them is not a bad idea, whether you agree with that person or not. And that's another thing that ideological tribes try to push us away from. But you see some changes being made. People can, you know, there might be somebody who I didn't vote for, I don't think is the best candidate that can actually get better and improve when they're in office. And so to me, it's silly, it's immature to say, don't talk to somebody who runs a state or runs the country uh, because we don't like them. That, you know, that that's not thinking about the people that's either prideful, petty, silly. We're not with it. Uh, but we will you know, we will give uh, credit where credit is due. And Governor Kemp deserves some credit for this particular policy for sure. All right, guys. Well, that is our show. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, you know, again, you can always support us on uh, at, at our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash church politics. Uh, we appreciate anything we get, we get. You can also support the movement by going to andcampaign.org. Uh, we need you. You are part of this movement. We got to make this happen because there's so many people hurting. There's so much good that we can do and better. We can do so much better if we come together and work together. Well, Ann Camp, there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. I'll let you. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. 
Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.